Thank you, and once again, good morning or good afternoon to Teachers the Word of God. We never know how many of these broadcasts are being broadcast in the morning program schedule of the afternoon as they go out all over the United States and are sponsored by Christians in various parts of the United States at various times. But we trust that you will take about 30 minutes uh, time out from your daily tasks today and sit down with us and study for a while the Word of God. Our study today is preeminently practical instead of doctrinal and deals with soul winning. Last week under this subject, we talked about the reasons for being a soul winner and the needs of a personal worker who is out trying to win people to Jesus Christ. Today, we'll talk about God's way in soul winning as we find it in Psalm 126, verse 5 to 6, and then talk a little bit about the procedure and general rules for leading people to Jesus Christ. All right, in Psalm 125, verse 5 and 6, we find the spiritual principle set forth. And although the direct and immediate context is speaking about the restoration of Israel and the fact that the uh, Jews will go through a terrible time of trouble and eventually will get good crops, notice the exact same thing in Joel chapter 2 where the reference is not to the coming of the Spirit of Pentecost, but has to do with the early and latter rain both coming down in the same month, not 2,000 years apart, and giving good wine and corn and wheat and barley, not people in the body of Christ. Now, we point this out because, after all, the Scriptures were given primarily for doctrine, not for spiritual misapplication. And yet a spiritual application can be found as long as the other Scriptures are not violated. Certainly it is true that the seed can be the Word of God because it is defined as this in at least one case in the parables of Matthew 13. And certainly the reaping can be soul-led to Christ that is apparent from the spiritual application Jesus Christ makes of these matters in John chapter 4, where you're told in John chapter 4 that if a man uh, sows and reaps, he works together with others uh, to get fruit to eternal life. Paul also likens the Christian uh, soul winning, or the ministry at least, to a matter of harvest and a matter of being a husbandman to a vine or to a crop in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So we're not being far-fetched when we say that Psalm 126 uh, deals with some principles in regards to soul winning. Notice the go in the soul winning, he that goeth forth. You'll never win the souls unless you go out after them. This perhaps explains why the first two letters in the gospel are G-O, go. As a matter of fact, our Anglo-Saxon word for God is this, G-O-D, go. There's no way to get the souls without going after them. Christ said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel. David said, He that goeth forth. That is, do not wait for the sinners to speak to you or open the conversations. God orders are that we go after them and maneuver the conversation to salvation. If there's one great sin of the modern church, it's the fact they're not going after them. I hear a great deal of criticism from some of the brethren these days about certain promotional methods used by some of the larger churches in America. And without taking sides, I'm certainly against any type of computerized salvation that is mechanized to build a monument and get shallow conversions or carnal conversions or no conversions. I'm certainly against that. Still, you'll have to take all your hat off, even to those who manage to bungle the job at times, in that they're trying. I certainly don't have a word of condemnation or criticism to make to a church that is trying to win people to Jesus Christ. If you're trying to win people to Jesus Christ, that much of your work is scriptural. And if you're not trying to win people to Jesus Christ, that much of your work is not scriptural. I mean, that's very apparent. The commandment is go. 
The commandment is not bring them to the building. The commandment is go out after them. And God's people on these days should be on the go. As the writer back to the said, they should have their loins girded and their shoes and their feet and the staff in their hand. And as soon as the Israelites got saved in Exodus 12, they had to get going. Many of God's people are waiting for what? I don't know what they're waiting for. A freight train or what? Or waiting for the commandment to go. The commandment to go was given more than 1,900 years ago. I have some very interesting figures I obtained one time from a soul winner where he figured what would have happened if every soul had led two people to Christ in a year and each of those had led two more people to Christ in a year. He was figuring how the entire world converted Jesus Christ before the year 800. That is, in 400 years, the world could have converted to Jesus Christ, the entire populated inhabited earth, if every man had led two souls to Christ a year and taught those two souls how to lead two other souls to Christ. That's one of those geometric things where in the first year there are two saved, and then you see the next year there are two more from the first one and two from one and two from the other. The next year there are six saved, in addition to see the three, making nine. And each of those nine leads two to Christ, which makes 18 plus nine, which makes 27. That is the first year, one man leads two souls to Christ, and the third year, the 27 of them saved. And it goes right on up in that proportion. In 400 years, you would have had over 7 billion conversions. And there aren't that many people on alive on the earth today, which shows that the majority of God's people are not soul winners. It shows the vast majority of church members have never led one person to Christ a day in their life. If every Christian had led two to Christ a year in a lifetime, and each of those new Christians had led two to Christ in a year, the world would have been converted before uh, the Crusades. And this goes to show that with all this talk about soul winning, with all this talk about revival, with all this talk about the great outpouring of the Spirit, God's people were never in a more carnal, non-biblical mess than they're in today with their apostate translations. It would be safe to say that 95% of the church members in America, 95% have never led one person to Jesus Christ in a lifetime and never will. The trouble is there are one or two fundamental works to get the funny idea because in their congregations, half the people show up to visitation and a quarter of them are soul winners, that something's going on. That's only going on in one church that covers less than an area of 40 square miles. You ever seen a map of America? You ever see a road map of America? Do you realize that if America had 10 more churches that ran 20,000 Sunday schools, it wouldn't even dent this country? If you put up 10 more churches next month that ran 20,000 Sunday school, they wouldn't have any more effect on the Senate and the Congress and the Bill of Rights and the Constitution than if they even showed up. What this country needs is one church in every town of a thousand or more that teaches and believes the Word of God and preaches from cover to cover and keeps the town torn up from morning to night. And though that takes place, don't you talk about revival. There isn't any revival. You're deluded. Now the soul winner needs to go after them. We need to go. One of the requirements for the soul winner is a broken heart. 
The Bible speaks about weeping. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Paul wept. In Acts 20, verse 19, he said, I warn you day and night with many tears and temptations. In Acts 20, 31, I cease not to warn every day and night with tears. So the broken heart of compassion for souls is one of the commandments, which explains why some people are preeminently successful in soul winning and others are not. It also explains how you can't computerize or mechanize the soul winning method. Without the compassion for it and the heart for it and the love for lost men and women, the soul consciousness, the knowledge that an eternal soul is there with an eternal destiny to face and a burden and compassion for that soul, the results are going to be mechanical and computerized and no new life will be imparted. All right, the Word of God is necessary in soul winning. The psalmist said, bearing precious seed. Do not expect people to be converted by your rhetoric or your logic or your arguments. Although these things may be helpful in convincing them and getting them upset, which is good for them, and disturbing them, which is excellent, and making them think, which is even better, the matter of conversion lies with the Holy Spirit applying the Word of God. Peter tells us that men are born again by the Word of God. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23. In the parable of the sower and the seed, Matthew 13, the good seed is said to be the Word of God. One verse might be sufficient, and generally a mass of verses only confuse, depending upon what verses are used. And we'll talk about that more later. The soul winner of naturally should learn verses by memory. At least learn the reference so he can find it. The soul winner should have the Word of God on him, according to Psalm 150, uh, Psalm 149. And the soul winner should be able to quote the Word of God at will and freely and be able to find what he says. This is absolutely necessary. And the fact that sooner or later somebody's going to call his hand and say, Oh, yeah, where is that? And in such case, the soul winner should be able to turn to the passage immediately without any hesitation whatsoever and show the person where it is. The thing that goes on in Bible discussions these days and Bible arguments is, well, I read that somewhere in the Bible, or, well, I know it's in there somewhere. <laughs> that doesn't solve the problem. You should know what it says, have it memorized, know where it is, be able to turn to it, and be able to read it. Now, it goes without saying that the greatest damage to soul winning and evangelism have been the newer translations of the Bible. For when you turn to the passage, you suddenly discover it doesn't say what you thought it said at all. It said what anybody thought it said or thought it meant or meant it thought that it might said that they would like to have it think that it said. <laughs> that is, with 45 translations on the market these days, the unsaved man can hide behind any alibi because nobody can pin him down to what God said because nobody knows what God said. That is the most destructive, damaging work that has been done in the history of Christendom, even worse than the damage done by Eusebius and Constantine at the Council of Nicaea, has been to pervert and leaven the Word of God by translations until nobody has any authority but their own stupid opinion. Make sure that when you go out soul winning, you know what the Word of God is. It certainly isn't Phillips, Weymouth, Moffat, Goodspeed, the so-called living paraphrase, the Amplified, the ASV, New ASV, RSV, New SV, International Magian Jig, Green Hornet, Tarzan, uh, the Hulk, that stuff, those aren't Bibles. Those are what we call religious comic books, and they're for the kiddies. You say, well, I've been told these are for folks that are serious Bible students. Nonsense. They're just puffing up making you think that you're smart if you read that junk. No serious Bible student would recommend an international version of New American Standard Version. Any serious Bible student knows those Bibles are from the Westcott and Hort Greek text. 
And if a man was serious about his Bible studies, he would know the Westcott North Greek text was invented by two men in 1881 to replace the Receptus. If any man was a serious Bible student, he would know those two men thought their personal opinion about manuscript evidence was more important than the entire body of evidence delivered to the church to the body of Christ through 18 centuries. And when a man tells you you're a serious Bible student and doesn't know that, he's just pulling your leg or the rug out from under your feet. Any serious Bible student knows that every Bible printed since 1881 is from the two oldest and most grossly corrupt, perverted, blasphemous, obscene manuscripts known to the history of manuscript evidence. Two manuscripts that contain the Apocrypha in the Old Testament, the Apocrypha in the New Testament, and contain more intentional and unintentional blunders, glosses, and errors than 1,600 manuscripts for the Texas Receptus. Now, if you're a serious Bible student, you know that. And if you're just taking somebody's word for it, then you don't know that. Make sure if you're a soul winner, you know what the Bible is, and make sure you have a copy, and make sure you know that copy and know what's in it. Learn the verses by memory, and depend upon the Word of God for conviction of sin and renewing in faith. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, but not by newer translations in the kitty car language of the modern apostate. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Have you got a copy of the Word of God? Don't you listen to you silly people who talk about the Word of God being the originals. If it cometh by the originals, nobody in America could get any faith. Can't you figure that out? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. If the Word of God is originals, you can't hear them, and you can't get any faith. Don't you understand that? You'd think something as plain as that somebody could understand now, wouldn't you? Now, when you go out to win people to Christ, be assured of a number of things. Be sure of joy. You're told you'll come again with rejoicing, reaping in joy, and bringing your sheaves with them, with you. The Bible speaks of rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents, Luke 15, 7 to 10. The joy of personal salvation is often superseded by the joy of soul winning. That is, the joy you get leading man to Christ many times is greater than the joy that you found when you first got saved yourself. But for many of us, receiving Christ as Savior was not a joyous experience. It was a breaking up time. It was a time of deep depression and discouragement and all kinds of trouble. I guarantee you Paul's time of salvation was not a time of rejoicing. He was not flattened his back and blind as a bat three days. You call that a time of joy? I guarantee you the dying thief's time of salvation was not a time of joy. He had to die a slow, lingering death with both of his shins bones busted with a gas pipe. You think he was shouting for joy and having visions of the Holy Ghost? Many times salvation experience is not a time of joy. Many times it's a time of deep depression and sorrow. But this is often superseded later when the Christian realizes that he can lead others to Christ and grant them the gift of eternal life which he has himself. And this brings him great joy. You can be certain of results, for he shall doubtless return again, bringing his sheaves with him, according to Psalm 126. In Isaiah chapter 55, we read God promised to bless his word as he promised to bless nothing else in the face of this earth. So it stands the reason if you don't have his word, you needn't look for a blessing. If the word of God is only inspired originals, then nobody in America has ever had a blessing, because God only promised to bless his word that went forth from his mouth. And if this was a reference to the originals, you don't have them, therefore what you've been preaching, God hasn't blessed. You'd think a fellow could understand that, wouldn't you? Anyway, the Lord said, uh, The word that goeth forth my mouth shall not return to me void, but shall accomplish uh, the purpose I send to it, and it'll uh, 
prosper in the way I send it. There's one thing God has promised to bless, and that's his word. Now, God may bless your jokes. Jokes have been used to open the sinner's eyes of the truth. I know an atheist who was converted by a preacher going by him one time and patting him on the back and saying, isn't evolution of nature a wonderful friend? Just think, if your nose was made upside down, every time you sneeze, you'd blow your hat off, and every time it rained, you'd drown. And that got that evolutionist thinking. God may bless some illustration you give. God may bless some experience you give or some testimony, but he hasn't promised to bless it. The only thing he promised to bless for sure and prosper was his word, Isaiah 55. And if all you've got is a reliable translation, then you can't claim one promise in that passage. Those of us who have the word of God preach it because we were told, preach the word. We were told to believe it because faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word. We read it to sanctify and cleanse ourselves because Christ said it was the truth. Those of us who have copies of it love it and believe it and read it. And we say a copy of it, we mean we have in our hand the words that God wants us to have in our language, infallible, authoritative, living, quick, and powerful, and without one proven error, in spite of the rotten propaganda put out by Christian colleges and universities. All right, put out the word. It'll bear fruit. You'll not win everyone you talk to, but you will win some. It'd be a wonderful thing if you even won 2% of the people you talk to to the Lord, if you witness to 100 a month, if you witness to three a day and only two of them get saved in a month, that'd be a wonderful thing. The Bible speaks of rejoicing in heaven over one set of the repents. Now, how are you to go about this thing? All right, first of all, seek and pray for opportunities and then use them. The Bible says, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. If you're a naturally uh, timid or bashful person, the thing for you to do first of all is pray. Don't go wait for these situation ethics. I mean, there's somebody much higher than situation ethics. That is, the one who created the situation knows the situation, knows the proper ethical way for handling it. You're not that smart. The thing to do is pray and say, Now, Lord, I need wisdom. Now, Lord, give me courage. Now, Lord, give me boldness. Say, Lord, I'm shy and timid. Please give me the boldness I need to witness for thee. Pray this. Pray, Lord, you know how timid and bashful I am and backward. Please help me to be a bold witness. Paul prayed for boldness to speak the word of God as he ought to speak, Ephesians chapter 6. If Paul, the greatest witness for Jesus Christ, needed prayers to be bold about his witnessing, don't you think we need it? Say, Lord, help me. Say, Lord, I want to please you. That it makes me nervous and I'm afraid. Now, Lord, help me. That's the first thing to do. Obviously, the first thing to do is always pray. Prayer is not a last resort. Prayer should be the first thing a man resorts to. Then the next thing to do is deal with your own age and sex if possible. That is, try to deal with, if you're a teenager, try to deal with teenagers. If you're a young man, deal with young men. However, if the Holy Spirit prompts you to speak to someone else, don't hesitate. Proceed at once. There's nothing in the Bible that says a teenager can't lead his mother and father to Christ. It's happened many times. There's nothing in the Bible that says a man that's 60 years old can't lead a 15-year-old girl to Christ. Moody did it all the time. But generally speaking, the general rule is deal with your own age and your own sex. Then be courteous. Don't be overbearing or too talkative. Let them speak too. That is, when you talk to somebody, don't rush up to them and grab them by the collar and say, where are you going when you die? Or grab them by the collar and say, are you saved or are you lost? I mean, use some common sense. 
give them a tract, say, uh, would you read this when you get time? Give them a tract and say, here's some food for thought. Give them a tract and say, I'd like to give you one of these. I don't know whether you want it or not, but uh, I read one of these about 20 years ago and it changed my life. Maybe it could help you, see? Be courteous. Knock at the door and sign from such and such a church. Maybe talk with you for a while, you see? Be courteous. You don't have to be brutal and blunt and uncouth and a personal witness. You might have to in preaching. The Lord might command you to in preaching. <clears throat> the Lord might want to have you take somebody's hide off. But in personal work, your job is to reach the person as an individual and lead them to Jesus Christ. Deal with the person alone, if at all possible. In a crowd, he'll try to save face by arguing even when he doesn't believe it. He'll give excuses he doesn't believe in himself. But when he's alone, he's more apt to open up to you heart to heart. Now, this is very important in places like the Army and Navy and Marine Corps and mills and factories. If you ever get dealing that fellow with a crowd around, you know what he'll do? He'll puff up like a toad frog and give you all kinds of trouble just to prove he's a big shot. And he'll lie like a dog and give you alibis he don't even believe in himself in order to save face. The best time to get a man when he's alone. Now, this may not always be possible. In hospital visitation, one of the greatest opportunities you have to win souls is simply to go in there by the bedside when the person is by themselves, when they're alone, have time to think about their sins and their depression and God and eternal things and talk to them quietly and lead them to Jesus Christ. A hospital is one of the finest place in the world for a personal worker. By the same token, you may go there and there may be somebody in the room. Uh, it may be the only chance you have to witness. So I'd witness, but be polite. Take uh, cognizance of the fact that another person is in the room. And if an argument starts, uh, cut the thing off, lead in prayer and leave. I mean, be a gentleman about it. When I talk to people about their soul, I don't charge them like I do in these broadcasts. On these broadcasts, I'm teaching and preaching the whole counsel of God. In personal work, I'm aiming for individual soul and try to lead him to Jesus Christ. There's a difference. Now, avoid arguing if possible. Sometimes it won't always be possible. You'll be put in situations where you'll be forced to defend the Word of God. When you do, stand up and defend it. <clears throat> Somebody said, never defend the Word of God, you know. That isn't true. Uh, you all always know how to answer every man that asks you a reasonable hope that is within you. Uh, you're called for the defense of the truth and contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Now, you're not called to waste undue time in arguing, and don't spend any time arguing if nothing could be gained from it. But if you're standing there and some heretic is standing there, by heretic I mean these vultures that come around to get the newborn calf as soon as it's born again, you know what I mean, Know how to refute these heretics with the Word of God so the man you're dealing with won't be taken in by their false doctrine. Many times, although you might not win, a, win an argument with a heretic, you'll win an argument with somebody listening to you and him argue. One of the great advantages of knowing the Word of God and being able to refute those and rebuke them sharply, Paul says, Titus chapter 1, they may be sound in the faith, is so an unsaved man listening can get the difference between absolute truth and somebody's theological opinion. Now, there are four denominations raised up by Satan to prevent you from leading souls to Christ. In America, we don't have freedom of speech, so I'm not allowed to name those four denominations. We lost our right to freedom of speech in 1864 and 5. When the Civil War was fought, it was decided that states lost their rights and states were controlled by the federal government. This means that the federal communications system controls speech in America communications. So I'm not allowed to broadcast like this to list the four groups of people 
that will do everything they can to interrupt you and you're trying to lead a man to Christ. I will say this. I will say that if you ever go out and try to lead people to Christ, you will immediately run into these four denominations and you'll know who they are. So the best thing for me to do in this broadcast is simply challenge you to be a soul winner, and then you would write me and tell me who they are, okay? Now listen, there isn't any saved man listening to my voice who has ever tried to lead a man to Jesus Christ who didn't get trouble from one of these four denominations who all profess to be Bible believers. When I talk about heretics, I'm not talking about infidels or agnostics or atheists. I'm talking about there are four churches in America that are incorporated as non-profit religious organizations, and the members of those four churches will do everything they can to keep you from leading a soul to Christ if they're around when you start dealing with that unsaved fellow. Now, you mark what I'm telling you. I'm telling you that after experience of 29 years in the ministry, preaching in more than 700 churches, representing 10 different denominations, as a full-time pastor for 12 years, and a full-time evangelist for 11. Now, you mark what I'm telling you. There are four religious groups, one, two, three, four, who, if their members are around, will do everything they can to mess up your witness to an unsaved man if they're around when you do it. <clears throat> and the reason why is these fellows never deal with unsaved people. Their ministries are getting proselytes from churches. Now, you mark what I'm saying. When you're put in an argument with those fellows, rebuke them sharp, that they may be sound in the faith, and deal with them directly, and let the unsaved man know that you have the truth, and these people don't care for their soul, they care for their belief. Don't rely on your own ability or experience in soul winning. Keep praying for guidance all the time you're dealing with a man. Don't become impatient. Soul winning and getting the man to receive Jesus Christ is a tremendous decision, the most important decision in his life. And it's only right that people consider well before taking the step. If you don't want him the first time, pray for him two or three months before you go back and deal with him. And deal with sinners as if you yourself were in the same shoes. That is, you are a fellow sinner, not a superior being. We say people are merely saved sinners who, by the grace of God, have had the good fortune to receive Jesus Christ our Savior. And we deal with the unsaved people about their soul and about their sins. We should never assume the attitude that I am the great, sanctified, charismatic, spirit-filled instructor, but I am a sinner saved by grace, and if it weren't for the grace of God, I'd be in hell, too. Let the man know that. Let him understand that you and him are both in the same boat except for one thing, and that is you have applied the shed blood of Jesus Christ to your sin, and he hasn't, and you are praying and begging and hoping he will, and may you, as a good ambassador of Jesus Christ, beseech him in Christ's stead to be reconciled unto God. Now, I realize these two lessons have been very brief on the soul winning, but we'll have more to say about this later when we get into lessons on consecration in the Christian life. Our next broadcast, <clears throat> broadcast number 90, will deal with the subject of consecration, the great verses in the New Testament that deal with the believer's relationship to Jesus Christ as... He follows Christ daily by self-denial and cross-bearing. Consecration will be our next practical lesson on the Theological Seminar of the Air. Until then, may the Lord bless you, and good day.